Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice in conversation with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. I am here with my friend, CEO and founder of Rockets of Awesome, Rachel Blumenthal. Hi, Rachel. Hi. Thanks this for, is so fun. Thanks for coming on the Leave Your Mark podcast. Thank you for having me. Oh my God. I'm so excited to talk to you because you are such a wonder woman in every way. So first of all, do you remember how we met? I've been thinking about this a lot and it also means that I'm getting old and forgetful, but I've decided that the people you don't remember how you met are actually your real friends. Really? Yeah, Why? because... Your relationship has so far exceeded what that initial introduction was that it's so much more insignificant in your relationship now. That is really interesting. Well, I will tell you, it was through Emmy Rossum. And you were sitting, yes, we were. I was her guest at something. You were her guest at something. You were sitting in a booth with Michael Carl, I think. Yeah. And Emmy. And it was in some restaurant. I can't remember where. And I came over and she was like, you have to meet Rachel. She has this amazing jewelry line, blah, 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 blah. And we just like exchanged contact info for whatever reason. I have no idea. It's so funny. I know. And then we were just like friends. That was it. I love that. So, okay. We have so much to talk about. You're a three times founder. You're a CEO. You're a mom of two. No big deal. So I want to back up a little bit because of course we know how you end up, but how you get here is I think the jewel of the story. First of all, where'd you go to school? So I grew up on Cape Cod. I went to public school. Um, people actually live and grow up on Cape Cod. That's like a thing. Um, I went to school in Boston at Tufts where I've actually met my husband, Neil. I didn't know that. We met the first week of freshman year. So we've known each other for over 20 years. Wow. But we didn't date in college. So that's the most fun fact of the fact that we've known each other since we were 18. Wait, what's the age difference? We're like six months apart. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we dated each other's friends all through college. And there was never an attraction. Well, it, it wasn't even a consideration because I was like, oh, you're my friend's boyfriend. And so it wasn't about that. It was we were just in the same circle of friends. And we actually studied abroad in Spain together and sort of randomly reconnected a year after graduating in New York and then started dating. Oh my God, that's amazing. I spent the summer at Tufts, by the way. I did a creative writing course and loved it. Um, were you a good student? Yes, you were excellent, I'm sure. Yeah, but I was definitely like trying to find my way as to like, what do I do when I grow up? And Tufts introduced an entrepreneurship track in my senior year. And that was really frustrating for me because I felt like I like finally found 
my thing. You know, I wasn't going to be like an art history major and I ended up being political science and economics, neither of which really felt totally right for me. And senior year, I finally had sort of that entrepreneurship, you know, the peek into what that world might look like. And that was the first moment where I was like, oh, there's something interesting here. Like we're talking about tangible business and building things and doing things and less sort of theoretical. I find it amazing that you instinctively knew that that would be a track for you. Like I probably would have heard about that track and been like, oh my God, keep me far away. (laughs) I think it was more that I was very curious about it. I was really interested. All I knew going to college is that I just wanted to work. I knew that I just had to get into the workforce and start doing things and learning and trying things. Whereas most are scared by that. And I was just like, put me in coach. Like every internship I could possibly have, anything I could possibly do to just be like hands-on working was what was compelling to me. And did you learn that from your parents? Was that instinctive, intuitive? Like where does that come from, that drive? So my dad is a doctor, but he definitely has sort of like the entrepreneurial instinct in that he's very much part surgeon, part business guy, which is a very rare combination. Very, very rare. He has an innate business sensibility and always sort of operated his businesses really, really well and has three offices and and sort of a big operation. And it's funny, I look back and I don't know why I always believed that I could do anything I wanted. Because my mom didn't work for most of my childhood and I didn't grow up in a place where I was surrounded by a lot of women that had careers. In fact, I didn't know a single woman that had a career. Interesting. But for some reason, I always just knew that I could go make something of myself. And maybe that was more that it was incumbent upon me to do that because I wasn't handed sort of all these opportunities or connections or relationships on a silver platter. Right. When I moved to Manhattan, I didn't know a soul. And I think because of that, it was incredible motivation to just make it happen for myself. And what was that first job? What was your first gig? So my first was that I had a friend that worked in the PR department at Christian Dior. And I was a good friend to have. I was like enamored. I was like, holy cow, how do you have that job? And I don't even understand what that is, but it seems really glamorous. And she sent a sample sale invitation to (laughs) me, but she CC'd every single publicist in Manhattan on this invite, which is like number one sin, right? But for me, I was like, this is my golden ticket. And so I took every single email address on that email and I BCC'd them. I sent them my resume. And I was like, I don't know, like shot in the dark, but like maybe someone will respond. And people started responding to me. That is genius, Rachel. It was the best fluke that ever happened. But I had, you know, Yves Saint Laurent and Chanel and Todd's and Carolina Herrera and a handful of others that actually responded to me and said, come in for an interview. Wait, hold on. I love that those brands were invited to the Christian Dior sample sale. That's the <laughs> like, what the hell? Why? Okay, Because, you know, all the girls are friends. Um, I remember calling my mom and being like, mom, like, it actually worked. People are responding. And long story short, I went in and met with all of them. And I connected with Garine and Yves Saint Laurent. And I remember distinctly, she had this, like, tiny little office in the back of a temporary, you know, showroom, but she had the most glamorous shoe on her desk. And I still remember to this day exactly what it looked like. And I'm thinking like, I would die to work in this place. Like, can you imagine how glamorous and amazing that would be? 
And she looked at my resume and she thought to herself, like, this girl has no experience whatsoever, but she's from Boston and she's from Massachusetts and Green was from Massachusetts. Oh, connection there. And she's like, and she went to, you know, like a good school and she must be smart enough and she can figure it out. Yep. So thank the Lord she hired me. And that's how it started. That's amazing. But then how do you leap from that to being like, I'm going to start my own jewelry line? So it was not intentional whatsoever. It was that I was at Yves Saint Laurent, which it was literally the heyday of fashion. I mean, okay, so 2003, Mm -hmm. there's more money than God in fashion. And I'm working for Saint Laurent where Tom Ford is the head of design. And it's an incredibly creative environment, but my role was not particularly creative. And I am a half business, half creative person, and I really needed that outlet. And so I went to the bead stores on 6th Avenue and bought materials and was literally just like hobby. Like M&J? Yeah, totally. Like M&J and like New York bead or something like that. <laughs> New York. I mean, truly. And I didn't even know how to make jewelry, but I happened to have like my dad's dental tools from this like arts and crafts project I did in college. Like his pliers. His Seriously, his pliers. And I handmade a piece of jewelry for fun and I was wearing it at work and I was friends with all the magazine editors. And my friend from Lucky saw it and said, well, we're going to feature you as a designer. Oh my God. That's amazing. And you know, in the, in the PR world, you sort of know that so much of it is spoken mirrors and about storytelling. Mm-hmm. And they featured me in Lucky Magazine. They did, you know, a half day shoot at my apartment and they said, can you bring more jewelry? And I was like, sure, no problem. And so I made like five more pieces of jewelry the night before and they shot me and featured me. And about a month later, Daily Candy just said, we're going to feature you. What's your domain? And I didn't even know what a domain was. And I was like, um, I'm in the middle of a meeting. Can I call you back? By time, by time. Seriously, just by time. And so I called a guy that I hadn't seen since Hebrew school when I was 13, (laughs) who I heard like did websites, which I didn't really know what that meant. And he threw up a landing page with an email address and a photo. And that was my website. And Daily Candy featured me about a week later. And it was an onslaught as hundreds of thousands of visits to this website. Wow. That could not transact, that I had no business. But buyers and editors and customer wanted this brand that didn't exist. Wait, did he put GA on it or no? Like, were they trackable? I mean, I didn't even know what that was. <laughs> like, literally nothing. Nothing. All I had was, I'm pretty sure I had a Yahoo email address. All that traffic. For which I had like tens of thousands of emails coming in that I was trying to respond to. Keep in mind that, you know, YSL, I was there every night until 10 or 11 p.m. So it wasn't like a nine to five job. And Henry Vendel invited me to come in and do a trunk show. Unbelievable. And my intern at YSL was also my roommate at the time. She's now like a very successful fashion stylist and editor and major influencer. And she was like tagging things and like making jewelry with me until like 3 a.m. every night so I could do these trunk shows. What I love about this story is it reminds me of the good old days power of PR because literally one article just led to all of that. Right. And that does not exist anymore. It's crazy. But it's also just like, you know, I look back on that and I look back on so many other sort of moments in my career. And I think at the end of the day, I'm an opportunist. I'm someone who sees an opportunity and I'm curious and I want to know more. And it doesn't mean that you take up every opportunity that comes across your plate. For instance, now I say no to more things than yes, but 
you have to have that curiosity and that openness to explore Mm -hmm. because those are the opportunities that have paved my entire career. You have to have the confidence and the flexibility and the instinct to be open to it. So would you say your mantra is really like, say yes, figure it out after? Totally. A hundred percent. Like you say, yeah. I mean, when Lucky featured me, they wanted to know who my retailer was that I wanted to credit in the magazine. I didn't have a retailer. I walked up and down Amsterdam and Columbus and Madison Avenue and begged somebody to take my product on consignment. Oh my God. And that was my retailer. Genius. I love it so much. So you built it into a real business. We were in 500 retailers worldwide. We did private label for American Eagle, Target, and G Crew. I mean, that's, it's like mind blowing. It was a real business and I knew nothing. I had no business doing it, but I taught myself everything. What was the time frame of that business? How it long? was eight years. Eight years. And then you sold it. I did. Someone approached me about the opportunity to exit and I had really hit that moment where I didn't feel like I was growing anymore. Mm-hmm. I felt like I needed a massive challenge. I didn't want to be good at my job. I wanted for it to be hard again. And that's how I knew that it was the right time to make a change. So interesting. I mean, you should definitely write a book on this for sure. (laughs) So you do that and then you decide you're just going to start a media company, Cricket Circle, just, you know, as one does, right? Well, you know, I think every new parent thinks that they have the answer to everything that's challenging about being a new parent. It's true. Right. And so it's a little bit of an eye roll. And I like was that eye roll. But at the same time, I think that there's no better entrepreneur than the entrepreneur that lives and breathes a pain point and mm-hmm. an experience because it's so innate and natural and you know better than anybody else. And so, you know, as every new parent, I was sort of overwhelmed by how many options of products are where to buy for your baby. And I didn't understand why there wasn't a cliff notes for someone already did the work. A million parents before me did the work. Like, why isn't it sort of limited and and sort of curated into one place for everyone to access this information? And so I essentially created a cliff notes of what to buy when you have a baby and product recommendations, what was best based on who you were as a consumer. And we created a really, really simple, basic sort of algorithm, if you will, a rules-based algorithm based on how you lived and how you traveled, of what car seat and stroller and bib and so forth was right for you. And we created editorialized content. So you decided, you know, were you aligned with who we were and what we stood for? And so we created content that spoke to new parents, predominantly moms, of what you needed to know to have a baby or to travel with a baby or how we could essentially like cut through the clutter and do the work for you. I think the the interesting thing about that business is that we launched that business in, I think, 2013 or 14. And it was a time in which it was acceptable to raise venture capital without knowing how you're going to monetize your business. And that was like the tiny moment in time. Um, and, you know, I still say to my investors of that moment, I'm like, why? Like, how did you give me money? Like I had no plan and you know what they say, which I think is really fascinating. I think still holds true to this day is that early stage investors are investing in the people. They figure that even if you have a monetization strategy, most businesses fail. And so they're investing in the people and that they believe in you and that they want to work with you. And if it's not this business, it will be something else. And 
you know, what we learned with Cricket Circle was that there were lots of different ways that we can monetize the business. There were very few that we actually wanted to do and that we didn't believe that they could actually be big enough businesses for which were worthy of venture capital and worthy of sort of the challenge that we wanted to spend our sort of like life's work on. And ultimately what we found in testing a number of different strategies and putting surveys in front of our customers and doing focus groups was that there was a bigger, broader pain point outside of just those baby products that were a very specific moment in time, right? It's probably a two-year mm-hmm. lifetime yes. for which you buy a gazillion things and you spend a ton of money and you're totally overwhelmed. And then two you years become the expert. And then you're the expert, like every you know parent before you. And two years is not a long enough lifetime value for business. But what we saw and what we heard and what we experienced was that kids outgrowing their clothes was sort of a lifetime of, you know, time with your children and that there was probably a 12 to 14 year lifetime for which we could be a much bigger, broader solution to the consumer. And we ultimately took the ethos and the mission of Cricket Circle and evolved it into building Rockets of Awesome for what it is today. It's amazing. I remember we had lunch one day and you were mapping out like all the different brand names and thinking about like what you would call it. And it's evolved. I mean, it is an incredible brand. I mean, it is so clear and all your creative is so aligned with like your mission and your values. It's like really building something, you know, beginning on a white canvas and then painting like a Picasso out of it. It's really remarkable. You should be incredibly proud incredibly proud. I hope you are. I'm sure you're like a really tough critic you're yourself. Just, you're always your hardest critic. And it's really hard to celebrate the wins when you're always trying to push forward and do things better and faster and smarter. But I'm incredibly proud of the team that we've built and the work that the team has been able to execute against and how we're differentiating our place in the market. And I think that in a world where the barrier to entry is lower than ever before. It is so much easier for somebody to put up a business and sell direct to consumer today than it was in 2003, right? Mm-hmm. Back then, I needed to have relationships with every last magazine editor, and I had to identify and have relationships with every last boutique in this country. And today, you can get on Instagram, and you can put a Shopify site up, and you can have a business sort of overnight, right? It's, I don't want to simplify it, but it's it's much easier. The, the barriers are much lower. And so what it requires is the necessity to break through the noise for the consumer and to be different. And I think that that appreciation of being different and the value of being different in the market is not appreciated as much as it should be because there's so many brands that look the same. Oh, for and sure. it's not clear to the customer what the value proposition is. And we push on ourselves every single day to make sure that we can be different. So if someone's listening and they're like, they want to start a business, the thought process of like how you start, like step one, you started with the brand concept. So we started first and foremost with what is the pain point in the market? And it was a combination for me as a consumer. What was my pain point? It was that it was incredibly hard and time-consuming and frustrating to find cool kids' clothes that weren't expensive. And then what was the pain point for the customers of Cricket Circle, for which we leaned on them incredibly in the beginning? And then beyond that, it was like, okay, so that's the pain point. But what, like, how do you further differentiate that, mm-hmm. right? And, and what we kept sort of hammering in on was that 
as parents, we're replacing an entire dresser full of clothes every season. And as a new parent, I sort of felt like I was doing it wrong. Like I was doing parenting wrong. How is it possible that you were sort of going through so much inventory and it felt so disposable and wasteful, but your kids were really outgrowing that quickly? And was there a way to do the work for the parent and make it really easy for them to shop and really kick off that season for them. And so as a business, we started with a subscription model, not because subscription is trendy or cool or that all these businesses were blowing up because they were subscription, but because we said, this is a consumer we're solving for. This is a pain point they have. How do we make it as easy for them as possible? And if we could put a wardrobe in their home at the beginning of the season, before they even have to worry about shopping, could we make her life easier? And over time, could we offer other ways for her to shop that continue to be easier? And so the fast follow to that was e-commerce and soon will be brick and mortar retail and then, and then, and then. But it always comes back to who this customer is, what is their pain point, what is distinctly unique to this customer, and how do you solve for that? And make it an incredible unboxing moment. And it has to be magical, it right? Has to be like, magical. It has to be magical. And and for us, what's incredibly challenging, but I also think is the most fun about what we do is the fact that we have two customers. We have the moms and we have kids. And their demands, their interests, their motivations are fundamentally different, right? What I solve for for you is very different than what I solve for for your kids. For sure. Um, and so that sort of yang and yang of an experience is hypercritical to what we create. What do you think when you're like, okay, you got all of that down pat, you've done that heavy lift. Who is your first hire? When you say we, like who was that first person? What is the title of that person? So the first person we hired, the first two people we hired, one was a children's wear designer because I'm not a children's wear designer and I could probably fudge it, but I don't have any relationships in the world of manufacturing. And so I could spend the next six months going to Asia and sort of fumbling around, or I could hire an expert who says, these are the six factories I've worked with my entire career, and this is who we should work with. And so we hired a children's wear designer who had manufacturing relationships, and we hired an engineer who could build a website. And those were the first two people we started with. And then slowly we added more people in. Amazing. How many people work here now? 55. Unbelievable. And it launched what year? We launched almost three years ago. Oh my God. So amazing. So amazing. I can't. So you put a lot of punch into your day. Yes. (laughs) You are a mom of two kids. I mean, your daughter, I want to eat her alive every time I see a picture of her on Instagram. She's really fun. They're they're both, I mean, you know, each each is sort of their own special unicorn. Of course. And we were discussing before we went on air how, you know, our kids never think we're cool, (laughs) which I guess is just the curse of just being a parent. So how do you balance that? Because as an entrepreneur, especially of like a budding, growing business exponentially, how are you sort of juggling all of that? Like, how do you sort of get rid of the mom guilt? How do you do it all? I don't think you ever feel like you're doing any of it well. I think you always feel like everything is mediocre. Um, I don't believe in balance. I believe in immersion. Explain that. Meaning that it's never a perfect balance and it's never that you can ever turn everything off completely. And, you know, I think more than anything, what I value about what I'm doing from a work perspective and what my husband is doing 
is that we can actually expose our kids to it. That can be really interesting and really rewarding and a great sort of growth opportunity and development for them in that they can see what we're doing and ask questions and learn. You know, the fact that like our eight-year-old son can speak to like what the value propositions of our business are, and he can come home and say, so mom, I was thinking about your manufacturing and how you make kids clothes. And he basically described to me like our supply chain. And he's how old? He's eight. And he did this when he was like six and a half or seven. And I was like, God, how do you do that? But so immersion for us is that we talk a lot about what we do at home and expose our kids to it. And I actually think that that's a great development opportunity for them. But I live and die by my calendar. And I live and die by Google Calendar specifically because Neil and I both share Google Calendar. And so we never have to talk to each other um, because we see what our schedules are. And so I never have to say, like, we're trying to schedule something with the kids or with friends for dinner. I don't have to you know, text or email back and forth because I have access to his calendar and we can put things on the calendar. Um, but I'm incredibly scheduled. And so I schedule time for working out. I schedule time for time with my kids. I schedule time for work, personal life, and so forth. And that is my Bible. Yeah, I am the same way. Actually, I send David calendar notices for like different activities. Yeah. And he always declines them. (laughs) It's hysterical. I'd be like, dinner with family, decline. It's funny you say that because I actually never track whether they're accepted. (laughs) I just assume that if I put it there, I've communicated it to you and like you were going to be there. Oh, no, no. That's not not in my marriage. It's almost <laughs> 20 years and he's still declining every single invite. I'm like, okay, you don't have to go to family dinner. That's totally cool. So you're an incredible leader. What is your management style? Like, What are your leadership values as far as running this company? And what do you think is important? So I'm learning. You know, I think that being a leader, it's part of my development as a human. And every single business has been at different scales. And so leadership has meant many different things at different stages of each business. But today, leadership for me means being super, super clear on what is the big, meaty vision of what we're building? Like, what does 5, 10, 15 years look like for this business? What does that look like for the customer and how they interact with us? And how are we going together? Mm -hmm. Sometimes that is big, broad sort of vision. Sometimes that is very specific details, but it's incredibly critical for me to be able to articulate that and communicate that in a very direct and clear manner so that when I hire people who are way more experienced and have, you know, deep expertise and things that I do not have, that they can run without barriers in front of them. And ultimately my job then is to remove the barriers for them. I know that you are someone who believes very strongly in hiring people who know things you don't. And I think that is an incredible, I guess, attribute or characteristic of you as a person, because I know many CEOs who have egos the size of Texas, who want to think that they are the smartest person in the room all the time. And I think that it just shows how thoughtful you are and how dedicated you are to building your brand, because that is something that takes a lot of confidence to be like, you know what? I don't know that, but this person is a rock star and I'm going to hire this person and let that person lead that area. So I commend you for that. It's interesting because yes, you have to be a hundred percent egoless in this business. But I think as an entrepreneur, particularly somebody like me, who for the first eight years of my career, 
kind of did almost everything myself, right? It was an exceedingly profitable business and we never raised capital and it was always cash flow positive, which I call that out because that's fundamentally different than any of the venture backed businesses that are being built today Mm -hmm. and mine included. But it was in essence, a small business, right? Like I was hands-on, I was hiring very, very junior level people because I didn't have large budgets and so required a different level of management and leadership and sort of partnership than a business of this scale. When that is sort of what you know in terms of entrepreneurship, there's a tremendous amount of pressure for you to have to do everything yourself and figure everything out yourself. And you kind of build sort of that resilience and that skin in that like, I just got to do it because if I don't do it, it's never going to happen. And it's taken a lot of development to look in the mirror and say like, you're in a different place now, right? And the type of leadership and management that's required of a business that you're building today is very different. And having comfort to say, it's not just my responsibility. And there are other people around the table that I should and can rely on. Mm -hmm. And that shift is pretty different and certainly a learning curve for me and one that I'm really proud to now sort of like come out the other end. But that's sort of like an own leadership challenge in itself. Incredible. Really incredible. And as far as like the kinds of people you look for, like there's so many, I mean, I get hundreds of emails a day of people looking for jobs. And, you know, of course, it's a dream to work in fashion in any capacity, especially for a startup. You know, you walk in here, the office is incredible. Magnetiles on the coffee table. Um, you know, what do you look for? Like, are you looking at a resume and thinking, oh, you know, yes, they tick off all these boxes? Or are you looking for some sort of magical attribute of the person? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and certainly my ability to hire, I can finally say that I... I have obscene confidence and my instinct in hiring. Oh, I love obscene confidence. That's amazing. And it doesn't mean that everyone I hire is a win, but when I do hire them, I know that they're not. And that's a decision that you make, right? It's a decision in sort of like a cost benefit analysis. So wait, so you would hire someone and be like, okay, this person's not a win, but I'm going to hire them anyway. Once in a blue moon, you might do that because... You might say, you know what, they're not going to be the person that's going to take this role or this business from, you know, X level to to Y level, Mm -hmm. but they're exactly what this team needs today to get to the stage. But I would say that, yes, a resume, I think it is sort of a phase to enable you to sort of edit out people out of the process, right? Because you can't speak to everybody, but often a resume is not representative of who the person is. And I would say whether I'm hiring an executive or I'm hiring someone straight out of college, there are personality sort of characteristics that I look for. And the number one thing that I look for is the level of horsepower that this person has. Interesting. And you can tell in the way they present themselves more than anything. I look for, and I always say this to my team, I'm like, if the person that you're interviewing doesn't interview the shit out of you, they don't ask you 8 million questions, then you should not hire them. And it doesn't mean that their questions have to be the most sophisticated questions on the planet, but it's representative of one, curiosity, Mm -hmm. and two, the way that they are thinking through what this business is doing and what this role is doing. And so a junior level person, their questions might be really basic and simplistic around the role. And they want to ask every last question about what this entry-level role is you're expected of this person. 
because they want to be set up for success mm-hmm. and they're curious. An executive, their questions are really sort of line iting through PL or line iting through a business model, but they better interview the crap out of you. If they don't interview me, I want nothing to do with them. I think that is amazing advice. Amazing advice. So as a CEO, you've had to negotiate a lot. What is your number one negotiation tip? Negotiating is like dating, <laughs> right? Like nobody wants what they can have. Interesting. Yeah. It's like a playing a hard to get game. I think that is what it's like to fundraise. It's what it's like to negotiate with a vendor. It's what it's like to date. It's what it's like to hire. I think it's the give a little pullback game of like, again, like you, you never want what you can have. Oh my God. Such great advice. So how do you, I imagine you get stressed every once in a while. How do you sort of decompress from this world, this constant CEO world and mom world, both equally stressful? I think that being a parent forces you to like turn it off, Mm -hmm. right? Like when you come home and you come home with like all the weights, the world's stress and weight on your shoulders. And you're thinking about the 8 million things that are going right or going wrong or that you have to do at work. And you come home and there's sort of like a whole other world of either chaos or happiness or sadness with your children. Um, you have to be present in that moment. And if you're not present, it's almost more stressful for you, right? If mm-hmm. you're trying to multitask oh, yeah. with your kids and like, answer an email, a text message, and pay attention to them, it's way more stressful than if you can sort of like compartmentalize what's going on. And so again, like, that's why I'm incredibly scheduled where when I come home, I'm 100% with my kids for that period of time. Mm -hmm. And that's not five hours, but it's the one to two hours typically before bedtime for which I'm like shut down for those moments. And if it's like an emergency eight alarm fire, like someone knows how to get in touch with me, but I'm not multitasking because I have to be focused in that moment to be as effective for my kids. And in those moments where like, it's the most basic thing of like, can't put the socks on the right feet and they're like crying because they're having a meltdown, like it brings you down to reality. Totally. And it forces you to like put away some of those stresses of the day. And possibly to just make socks that go on either foot. (laughs) (laughs) Little inspo there, right? Totally. But I'm definitely also like dedicate time to myself. You know, I go to acupuncture once a week because interesting. I get migraines and that is like one of the ways that I sort of like solve for my migraines. I dedicate time to working out in the mornings and I work out earlier than I would like to so that I can be home to get my kids dressed and out the door for school. Um, I always get a manicure once a week and I will do it on a conference call because I don't have 30 minutes to myself, but I schedule those things to make sure that I don't feel like my whole world is crumbling. So Neil can see like Rachel's manicure, like on the schedule. Yes. (laughs) Double booked with a phone call. That's amazing. What are you most excited about for the future? Like, what are you just like looking forward to or what sort of forward thinking journey do you see down the road? We're just building, I think, such a fresh perspective on what life with kids is. And life with kids is not the saccharine, sweet, perfect images that most brands put out into the world. Life with kids is messy. And it's good, messy, and it's bad, messy. And 
I am so bought into and proud of and excited by this world of rockets that we're building. And it gives me sort of goosebumps because I love this idea of building this world where every parent, whether you can afford our product or not, every parent can relate to it because it's real and it's authentic and it's what we all experience every single day. And I believe that if we can create this environment around content and connections and you know, whether that's copy or imagery or different channels for which we can communicate, you know, social and so forth, then we can create a world where parents can connect. I'm not trying to build like the next social media platform because everybody has enough places to like post stuff, just deal. (laughs) But I want to create a conversation that people can feel connected where both the parents can feel connected and the kids can feel empowered and where we're really supporting and developing their confidence as little humans, that to me is like the big picture. And that to me, you know, yes, we're going to sell you the best leggings and the best sweatshirts and so forth. But to me, it is much more about this world that we're creating to connect parents on a much deeper level around what we experience every single day. So amazing. I would also like to add to your future roadmap, extended sizing. So my children can fit in the clothes. I know. We're They're extending so good. Slightly. We're extending the size 14 this year. Okay, good. Um, but keep, keep it going. I would like to extend it to 16. Yes. I think 16 is probably like the limit before the kids are just too big where they want to be wearing sort of the brands that we're wearing. 16 is perfect. Yeah. I remember when we were in the Hamptons this summer and you had your amazing pop-up. And Sabrina was looking at everything, and I was like, oh, God, she's like not. Just, like, trying to, like, like, squeeze into that last bomber jacket. How about we just, like, put on that one thing? And then it's like, (laughs) just take a quick picture, Instagram. Um, No, because the clothes are really cool. I mean, it's just stuff I would want to wear. Like, that's the point. Like, we're trying to make you jealous, right? (laughs) Like, if you're like, God, I wish I could wear that, then we have done our job. And... Our designers don't look at children's wear brands or run, you know, children's style as reference. We look at men's and women's ready to wear and street style. We want to be making the clothes that we want to wear, but appropriate for our kids. Amazing. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on Leave Your Mark, the podcast. You're a wealth of information and inspiration and motivation. And I feel like anyone who's trying to launch a business will listen to this and just be so incredibly energized by everything you have to say. So everyone needs to check out rocketsofawesome.com because it's amazing. And by the way, the user experience is amazing too. Just even the intro of just like, will you just speak to that for a second? Because it's so different than anything else. Yeah. I mean, you know, more than anything, we just want to make your life easier. And we want to deliver you the best product and show you how to make awesome outfits and deliver you really great prices and make it easy. If you're a subscription person and you want us to do the shopping and the work for you, we can do that. And we ask you every last sort of detail about your children. And if you're not a subscription person and you know exactly what you want, you just want to shop your We have an e-commerce experience also. And this fall we will have, or this summer rather, we will have a retail store in New York City to shop for your kids' clothes in real life. Where will it be? To be determined. To be determined. Well, that is super exciting. Congratulations on all of your success. You deserve it. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to Leave Your Mark, the podcast. If you want more career advice, be sure to pick up my best-selling book, Leave Your Mark. If you want to subscribe to my career advice newsletter, Blackboard, you can do so on alizalick.com. Be sure to follow me on Instagram at alizalickxo or reach out on Twitter at alizalick. And just remember this, 
If change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.